This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. You know, one thing that I love asking designers is what advice they would give to up-and-coming designers. But when I talked with John Lax, the director of product design at Facebook, he switched it up on me, actually gave me two pieces of advice. There's two pieces of advice, so it won't just be one. Um, two pieces of advice are uh, design is all about the details. I think that that is really, really important. The best design things have looked after the smallest details, so you have to pay a lot of attention to those. The other thing that I've, I've been taught about designers Thing I've learned about design is that design that isn't solving a problem for people is just art and uh, sometimes you have to understand if you're making art or you're actually designing something that someone's going to use and get value from in the world. And there you have it. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I want to talk about our other sponsors, MailChimp and Hover. More than 10 million businesses around the world use MailChimp for marketing automation and email newsletters. MailChimp makes it pretty easy for businesses to not only send better email, but to make something beautiful and connect directly with customers. Take a look at what you can do at inspiration.mailchimp.com. When you have a great idea, you want to secure a great domain name for it. That's where Hover comes in. Hover makes it super easy for you to find that domain name that you're looking for and get it up and running with no hassle and no heavy-handed upselling. So go ahead and grab yourself a domain today and use our promo code REVISIONPATH and you'll save 10% off your purchase. Here's our Patreon fundraising campaign update. So we're still holding steady at 34 patrons. That's for a combined total of $229 a month. Again, a big huge thanks for everyone that has already pledged your support and appreciation for the show. If you want to become a patron of Revision Path and get access to some really great perks like special giveaways, early access to future episodes, and free Revision Path swag, head on over to patreon.com forward slash revision path and make that happen. Pledge levels start at just $1 per month and it's a really great way to support the show on a regular basis. Now let's get on to this week's interview. I'm talking with Asia Ho, a product designer for 2U in New York City. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, my name is Asia Ho. I'm a product designer at an ed tech company called 2U. So I help this organization design the entire interface for universities to get their degrees online. I was just about to ask you, like, what exactly does, uh, does 2U do? Do they work with a lot of like smaller universities, big universities? Um, all of the programs that we work with, they offer advanced degrees, so master's and further on. So we work with a lot of really big universities like Syracuse, NYU, and then we have a few smaller but not that small universities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what's it like working there? I like it a lot. I started in July after freelancing for about two and a half years. Yeah, I really like what I'm doing right now, and I was just really surprised because I came into a team that was very, very diverse from the get-go, um, which was 
definitely something that made me feel right at home very quickly. And everyone's pretty young, but it's not like isolated. There are people of all ages. There are lots of women in leadership roles. Um, so I, I feel like I lucked out because it was very difficult to tell that from the outside at first. I really like the office, which unfortunately we're outgrowing and probably will leave soon. And uh, I like the work that I'm doing. It feels meaningful and um, I feel like I can make a direct impact on the culture and the products. Yeah, I took a look at the 2U website and it, it I think the thing that struck me the most aside from how like open and airy and friendly that it felt mm -hmm. is that in all of the pictures I saw, everyone was smiling but not like fake stock photo smile. Like I'm actually enjoying what I'm doing smiling. Like every, I think I even saw the, the video reel that kind of talks about why people love to you. So it looks like it is a very kind of opening and welcoming place to work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would, I would definitely say when I first saw that I was kind of skeptical about it, but it was right on the money. Like those, the way people reflect themselves on the website, that's how they are here. And you always have your exceptions, but yeah. for the most part, the culture that prevails is a positive and inclusive one. What's a typical day like for you working there? I would say it's very flexible. We tend to start at 10. Although if there's like a morning errand or something like that, I just talk to my boss and adjust my, my time. No one's like on my back telling me you need to be here at 10, not 10.01. A lot of teams will do things their own ways, but... Most of the stand-ups are in the morning, in the afternoon, we get a lot of work done. There might be meetings, but uh, in general, spend some time working on things solo. And one thing we've changed recently is trying to get more pairing into our design process, which is really exciting because I'm always interested in the development side of things. And um, it's really nice getting to work with other designers and developers. You said pairing, like pairing up with another designer? Yes. Okay, nice. So how do you kind of approach new projects there at 2U? Does it, does it vary per team, how that works? Historically, it has definitely varied. But more recently, we're trying to refine all of our processes, even down to how we build things. So we're starting to see everything move toward a standardized process. We're trying to get design user experience design in particular to be the nucleus of all of our applications. So I would say the process is moving toward always being pretty consistent. So I have a question here. This comes from our uh, Slack community. Mm -hmm. Question is, one of the major thoughts out there for product designers is that they'll be able to create end-to-end -end experiences. And I guess they mean like the customer or the user experience from onboarding to whatever that end looks like, whether it's completing a certain task or something like that. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? And is that something that you're kind of doing at to you? Okay. So I think that expectation is definitely very valid and very real, but it's also kind of impossible <laughs> because mm -hmm. um, one person doing everything from, let me research my users, let me, start doing some sketches and prototypes and then start building it and developing it. That's a lot to ask of someone because each of those separate roles are all concerned with very different problems. So while it's not unreasonable, 
what's nice about having multiple product designers in a room is they can all cycle between those different roles. So um, here at 2U, we don't deal too much with the, the front end or back end side of things. Although there have been times where it's like, hey, I need your help with something and I know you're, you're more talented at SaaS or whatever it might be. Can mm-hmm. I could use your help on this. So that kind of situation might happen. But at least in this context, there's no expectation that you're working on something in the dark by yourself. It's definitely a team effort. And all of those talents that you bring to the table are appreciated in those moments where you might need to juggle multiple tasks. It doesn't sound like there's also that expectation that can happen sometimes at places where the designer is expected to do everything. Like the designer is also expected to code it up and and do all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I would say that that's not an expectation here. I think the furthest we'll go is that we're expected to be able to prototype things in code if need be. And I would say that front-end development is not necessarily a strong suit of many developers. So that can be an opportunity for us to step in. We have an internal style guide that defines a lot of those assets. That's pretty much how we manage that. Because in general, we want there to be a holistic feel to all of our applications. So that's how we manage that expectation. Yeah, I feel like that's still one of those those ongoing debates in our community about should designers code mm-hmm. or, or should developers be able to kind of put out some I don't know, some prototype that would resemble a good front-end design or something like that. Yeah. And I think what we're seeing now with companies is that they're straying away from that, I guess, unicorn model. Like when I started, the designer had to know everything. Mm-hmm. Like the designer had to be able to do it in Photoshop, explain it, code it out, like the whole shebang. Mm-hmm. And now it feels, for me, it feels weird to see that you can now be a designer within a company and not write a line of code Mm -hmm. or you can be a developer and not be expected to like mock something up in Photoshop. Yeah. And I think the reason we're seeing it move that way is because we found that sometimes asking one person to do everything can introduce new problems. Um, Oh yeah. And that's partly why pairing is a big deal here because we want to solve that problem by having both minds securely in their expertise because even if you are a product designer that can do it all you still have a place where you shine the brightest so this organization tries to focus on that and allowing people to implement their expertise where it is the strongest and yeah i'm happy to see the unicorn thing go away but i'm also happy that we do get to have these skills and put them to use yeah, that's a that's a really good thing. I know even that title, product designer, can mean so many different things depending on just where you work. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, if you're working at a, a, a big company like, I don't know, like a social networking company or something like that, the product designer may be expected to do more as it relates to coding or or something like that mm-hmm. as opposed to if you're working for a smaller, smaller place. There was a piece that Diogenes Brito, who's been a, a guest on the show before, mm-hmm. He wrote it on Medium about like the these kind of nebulous expectations that can come with job titles. Mm-hmm. And product designer, I feel like, is is one of those new titles that can be confusing, I think, to people that will say, well, how do I become 
a product designer. Yeah. Well, does that mean you're doing more web, more graphic, more front end, more back end? Like it, it can, it can vary just based on where you want to go. Right. And I think that's partly why we're, we're still trying to grapple with, okay, what do we call ourselves then? Joel Khalifa coined full stack designer, which definitely gets us a lot closer, but that stack is going to vary from place to place. And that may require you to code. It may not. So that discussion, I feel like is going to happen forever because when I started designing, I was a graphic designer, plain and simple. And then I slowly started to acquire new skills and I turned into an information architect. Then I became a UX designer. And then finally I said, you know what? I really like front end too. I'm going to go full in and say I'm a product designer. And now we have this new term. And it's like, okay, you know what? <laughs> I, I just need to make sure people know what I can do. And the title, gratefully, is becoming less relevant. Well, speaking, I guess, of the stack, like what kind of tools and, and, uh, and things are you working with at 2U? The nice thing is we have a lot of flexibility to use the things that we like. One designer still really likes Photoshop, and it's fine for her to use that. A lot of us really like Sketch, although we have an eye on experience design from Adobe. But many of us, or at least about half of the team, we actually just like to jump straight into the code and start playing around with things in the browser. Because sometimes that can be more effective when showing it to stakeholders. Yeah, but we have a lot of openness. A lot of our products use less right now, but we're moving towards SaaS because partly that's where the industry is moving. And because it has some features that less either lacks or there are bugs for which has been really interesting because when I came, I was all gung-ho about SaaS, and then I learned less, and I'm like, okay, it's basically the same. And then as I got more familiar with it, I was like, okay, I really don't like the syntax. But that choice is still there. There's post-CSS to convert one to the other. And I think that's nice to be able to go either way and still get work done. But that's the gist of my, my tool set. And then we use things like Wake, which has been really nice as designers to share work between each other. Dropbox for assets. I think that's it. It's pretty bare bones and it's pretty fluid at this point. So with two of you working with a lot of, of universities and places with higher education, mm -hmm. you're kind of trying to accommodate, I would imagine, as many end users as possible. How do you all approach concerns as it relates to accessibility? That is literally <laughs> top of mind right now at two of you. And we're still grappling with how to figure that out. We've reached out to members and thought leaders in the community uh, in New York City who are starting to piece together networks and or resources for us to reach out to users who would benefit from accessibility. Because one of the issues with a company like this is we scale very quickly. A lot of our products don't necessarily meet accessibility standards, so we're like a little stumbly in approaching approaching fixing that issue. But for instance, there's there's a lab down at NYU that's looking at all the different hardware that's used by people who need accommodations. And Thoughtbot is also doing something in that area with their ally meetup. So we're starting there, we're bringing subject matter experts in and we're working to fix these things as we speak. What would you say is kind of the hardest part about what you do in general? I think the hardest part is having so many different types of users to 
commit to. I've been working on a lot of the marketing side of things, so it hasn't hit me quite as hard. But for the things that face our students, that can be really difficult because someone in a nursing program versus a law program are going to have very different expectations of what the application should be able to do and what it should look like. And that's actually been (laughs) something that really came up when we opened up to a, a data science program because they're like, pointing out bugs, and they have all this feedback about the development of the product, which is funny, but it's also like, okay, we have to get this right for all these different types of users. How do we find the common denominator that'll make most of these people happy? And then maybe later extend it to accommodate them. So that's, I think, the hardest part is figuring out how to do that. We're still... Like right now, we're kind of reinvigorated around creating personas and things like that. Because a lot of these things were just built without much input from UX. UX is still a fairly new trade. So the company is still learning a lot from us as a team and vice versa. And that's really exciting, but it's also the hardest thing is I have to be an expert and I have to keep everyone honest about who we serve. (laughs) So let's go back a little bit. I want to know, like, what was your first experience with design? Like, how did you first get involved with it? In high school, I went away to school through this program called A Better Chance. They basically send students of color to, quote-unquote, better schools across the U.S. Um, So I went from New York City to a school in Swarthmore, well, technically Wallingford, Pennsylvania, to get my education. And I had a lot of free time on my hands. I was dealing with culture shock. I went from being the majority to the minority, and that was really difficult for me to deal with, at least my first two years. And one of the ways I dealt with that was I started looking at websites and artwork online, and I said, you know what? I want to make a website. I want to be able to share stuff that my family can see back home. So I picked up a a book, and I started learning HTML and CSS. I started looking at source code, and I started making my own websites. And at some point, I plan on putting those on my website because it's pretty hilarious to look at it. (laughs) There are iframes everywhere. But in time, I got to love that stuff so much that I I wasn't really like posting my artwork or my writing. I was really just shuffling around the design for the website. And that turned into jobs on campus later when I went to college. And that turned into internships off campus. And then next thing I knew, I had a career in design. And now, speaking of, of campus, you mentioned before we started mm-hmm. recording, you went to Bryn Mawr. Mm-hmm. Tell me what your time was like there. Bryn Mawr was interesting. So when I was a freshman in high school, I, had, I started with one guidance counselor. It didn't work out because I didn't, felt, I didn't feel like she was invested in me. So I worked with staff at the school to get a new one. And he and I met and we hit it off right away. And he told me, I bet I know what college you're going to go to. I was like, how can you know that? You barely know me yet. And he's like, well, I'll let you decide, of course, but just keep this in mind. And he gave me a list of things to look at. And I'm a freshman or a sophomore, so I didn't think much about it. But he turned out to be right. And the way I was able to figure that out was I went to visit the school. I loved it. I went with a friend who had also gone to the same school with me. And I stayed on campus with her. I got to know the girls and women that were there. And I I, I just loved it. 
I did early decision, actually. That's how much I liked it. I saw tons of schools, but that was the one I had my heart set on. And that definitely impacted the way that I saw the school. Kind of saw it through rose-colored glasses at first. But as I settled in, I realized that there were some things that were going to be really hard to get through. Vermont, I thought, was very good at recruiting diversity, especially on a global scale. But there were times when I felt really out of sorts with my peers on campus. And I was exposed to even more privilege than I could have thought that be possible. The high school that I went to certainly had its share of wealthy students, but Bryn Mawr really put that into perspective. Like, these were the daughters of actors and politicians and, and people with real power. And that, that turned out to be pretty intimidating at times. So one of the ways I coped, which actually wound up being a problem for me, was I went off campus a lot to see friends at other schools. Because the great thing about Philadelphia is there are a ton of universities. So I saw a lot of people at UPenn. I saw people at Temple. And even on the main line, there was uh, Haverford and uh, Villanova. So I found ways to get around it. But unfortunately, my grades did suffer. The great thing about as difficult as it was, Bernard did have a lot of resources in place to help find that support. I remember I occasionally would go to talk with um, our counselors on campus um, about just how I was feeling and adjusting to the workload. Because in a lot of ways, Bryn Mawr, despite not being an Ivy League school, was more challenging <laughs> than some of the things I saw at UPenn. Because my friends and I would swap notes about, okay, what do you have to do in this class? It was really challenging. And as I mentioned about the computer science degree and failing and, and being told I have to switch majors, that hit me really hard and I became pretty disillusioned with the school for a while. They actually advised me to take time off when that happened, but I decided to push through. But I kept going. I kept getting jobs related to tech, and I fell back on an English degree, which is what I had intended to do before I even knew that computer science was a thing. There are some things that I'm admittedly still bitter about, <laughs> but it's still an excellent school, and I'm really happy that I went there. If I had to do it all over again, I would still go... But maybe think about that, that leap year that so many of us didn't think about until we were in the thick of it. Because then I might have figured out, oh, hey, I really want to do computer science. And next year, it's going to be an official major. Because when I started, it was an <laughs> indie, independent major. And there were a lot of hoops to think about and go through to take it. But yeah, I hope that answers yeah, so it, No, it does. It sounds like it was kind of a like a... And, and I might be misjudging this, but it kind of sounds like it was a bittersweet time. Yeah, I would say bittersweet is right on the mark. Yeah. Because I loved the way it was set up. I loved that they had a consortium and I could take classes at Haverford, Swarthmore, and UPenn. That was brilliant, and I loved that. I miss going to the library. The campus was beautiful. And I found, like, a, a great niche of, of friends that will always – that I'll be friends with forever. That's how tight we were. But there are some things and, and some signs, I feel, that they didn't realize in dealing with someone of color that another school might have picked up on. Interesting. Mm -hmm. I feel that, I mean, I went to, you went, I know Bryn Mawr is a, a, a women's college. Mm -hmm. It's one of the Seven Sisters colleges. Yes. I went to an all-male college. I went to Morehouse. 
And I get exactly what you mean about that kind of a bittersweet feeling, probably from a different perspective. Because, I mean, Morehouse is a male college and it's it's all male, but it's very, oh, what's the best way to say this? It's not going to piss off a lot of people. Oh, whatever. <laughs> so Morehouse is very conservative and I am not. Yeah. <laughs> so, like I wasn't brought up that way. And that was probably one of my biggest shocks going to the school was just how kind of steadfast it was about tradition and and these very conservative values. And I just was not feeling any of that. Like I went to raves in college and everything. <laughs> I just was not I wasn't because I guess, you know, and you probably can can maybe, you know, empathize with this. Like there's a certain image that they have of the students, I guess, as alumni, maybe as, I don't know, maybe also as just current students, like at Morehouse, there was this concept of like being the Morehouse man, mm-hmm. where, you know, the Morehouse man was well-traveled and well-spoken and all this, you know, kind of stuff. And I don't know, was there like this concept of like what the Bryn Mawr woman had to be and that they sort of like tried to perpetuate through different activities and things like that? Yes, there certainly was. Like, I remember sitting in the dining hall. And we had these women on campus that they enjoyed engaging in cosplay and some women would openly judge them. And I felt like, okay, it's great that they feel comfortable, but it's also sad that there's a contingent of this community that thinks it's okay to just sit there and talk about them. So there was definitely, I think, this image of what you had to be. And that person most certainly did not look like me. A lot of people disdained us for even having a separate space for us. They disdained the multicultural center. And we're like, we need these spaces because you don't want these spaces. And it it was hard to like teach them that because on the one hand, being a well-rounded student meant taking lots of courses in different genres, but it didn't mean that as an English major, I was taking courses from different authors from different backgrounds. That wasn't well-roundedness. And it's just like little things like that where it's like, I don't fit the expectations, but I'm going to get through this anyway. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. How do you feel like that time, or, or and maybe it has, maybe it hasn't, but how do you feel like that time sort of helps you now as a product designer or as a person really in general? It's helped me in a lot of ways. It's given me a lot of resolve. Like even when someone says, okay, you need a time out, it's best to just take that time, collect yourself, reflect and think about what went wrong and how it could have been avoided and then start again. Um, so that's been really empowering to learn. Uh, another thing was there were people on campus who were very nurturing as far as allowing me to participate with my design skills on campus. And that will always stick through with me. It's partly why I decided to get into ed tech at all because that was where I discovered that I was really passionate about activism through education. And one of the ways that happened was I was a web developer at the Civic Engagement Office um, on campus. So that I carry with me all the time that I'm invested in finding ways to use my skills as a product designer for people who want to better themselves and their communities. And I guess, you know, kind of Continuing on that, one thing that I noticed from, you know, looking through your your LinkedIn profile is that you've got a ton of experience as a mentor, 
as a volunteer, which I guess also kind of extends out what you're saying before about helping others out through education. What are some of the organizations that you've worked with? I've worked with so many at this point. I've started to lose <laughs> count. And some I'll, I'll work with like a lot in succession and then not for a while. But I guess there's All Star Code, which is an organization I found when I was at the General Assembly boot camp. Um, they help young men of color get into the tech industry. And a lot of people said, well, what about going to Black Girls Code? I'm like, I feel like the girls have it, but we need more organizations that would have encouraged my dad to go into the science and math that he was so good at. So when I saw that organization, I was like, okay, I want to be a part of that. Another organization I've been working with is New York on Tech. They're very new, and they've set up a mentoring pathway for students in high school. And it's interesting because these are not necessarily students who have self-selected into this program. Um, They might have been pushed or encouraged by their parents or schools. So sometimes you do have students who are there reluctantly. And I find it really rewarding that I can work with those students and reach them. Because so often these these organizations help the quote-unquote talented 10th. And it's like, okay, great. Those people are probably committed and dedicated enough that they're going to get to where they want to be anyway. How do we reach the people who think for whatever reason that that's not for them. So I really like that organization as well. And there are a few others. Um, I've slowed down in the last year to pick up on some of my skills, but mentoring is definitely something I advocate for. And I think when you mentor others, you mentor yourself. And I think it's something everyone should look into. Who have been some of your mentors? A lot. (laughs) At Bryn Mawr, one person that had been particularly helpful was my my dean, everyone was assigned a dean that kind of overlooked their experience at Bryn Mawr. And I haven't kept in touch with her, but that was one of my earliest mentors. Let's see. There was a mentor named Ansa who was one of the student TAs in the program that I was in in high school. And he encouraged me and bought me an HTML and CSS book that I still have on my shelf today. And he said, okay, you got this. And those are the kinds of mentors I've had a lot. Just someone who kind of nudged me and supported me for the for going in the right direction. And nowadays, it's a bit tricky because the line between mentor and friends is starting to blend. Like, I would consider Kat Small, for instance, to be one of my mentors, even though we're good friends. But she's one of those people that has nudged me and who I can learn from, despite her being a peer. And in some ways, having peer mentors is almost more valuable than someone who's like, I've been here and I've done this. Especially in an industry where everything is moving so rapidly, it can be really valuable to to talk to someone who might be like a few years ahead of you as far as their Mm -hmm. experience. So I have a list, but it's starting to get all muddled because a lot of these people I would call my friends as well. Well, I would think that's a good benefit though. I mean, the fact that they're also becoming friends means that, you know, they can they can empathize with you in a way that someone who, I don't know, is only interested in what you're doing professionally probably can't. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. And peer mentors. I can't stress enough the importance of peer mentors because it just it, it's one thing to kind of have someone, yeah, that might be, like you say, a few years ahead of you, but someone that might be kind of right there in the trenches with you in a way mm-hmm. is so helpful because this industry, aside from it moving very fast, 
can also be very remote. It can be kind of isolating unless you're working within a company with a whole bunch of people. And so just having someone that's like right along at your level to kind of bounce experiences off of and share things with is is really important. So mm-hmm. I definitely recommend peer mentors. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You're also into game design. Is that right? Yes. Please talk to me about the game design. I'm super interested in that. So it's one of those things where I'm like, am I good enough to start calling myself a game designer? Um, that's something <laughs> I grapple with. I went out to uh, the Game Developers Conference in San Francisco last month. And that was like the theme for it was, am I supposed to be here? What do I do? How do I show people that I'm a worthy contact and things like that? And it was a struggle. (laughs) But as far as game design, I got into it. Interestingly enough, part of the reason I decided to pick up code was because I started looking at game facts and looking. Mm -hmm. And originally they were very text heavy, but every once in a while you'd see one that was nicely done in HTML and CSS. So game design has always been something I've appreciated. I started playing games when I, before I could even read, I think I was like two, because both of my parents were gamers. And nice. um, when I was a kid, I didn't think like, oh, this is a job I could learn to do. I just thought of it as someone else made this and I can consume it. But as I've gotten older, probably about four or five years ago, I realized oh, hey, I speak this language. I can code and I can design things. I can make a game. And um, I started by going to collaborations classes. And then Playcrafting came along and I started going to those. And Kat, <laughs> I always talk about her in these things. But um, she also threw some resources my way when I started looking at her work. And then I started working with collaboration. I volunteered with them. And yeah, that's been my journey so far. I'm still learning. I haven't really released very much. I did work on a a game at a game jam in 2014 that we pushed around to different organizations and got some really great feedback. And that made me want to keep going with it. But, you know, (laughs) I have so many interests. It's hard to, to nail down which vantage point to take. So... So I have some kind of video game related questions for you. Go for it. <laughs> What's your favorite genre of game? That's so tricky. But I think my favorite genre is adventure. I love collecting things. I like getting immersed in a world and, and figuring out the lore. And I know it's a very generic category. And I don't really mind how it manifests itself, whether that's a platformer or a puzzle game or a shooter. I I like going around, looking for things, collecting things, and getting immersed in a story. The first game that I remember being really obsessed with was Donkey Kong Country 2. Mm. And I was like, okay, this game has percentage on it. I have to 100% this game or I'm not done. (laughs) And that drove my obsession. And I I really love games like that. But I also love open world stuff like uh, Assassin's Creed or Mass Effect borderlands things like that so anything that really has a story but also lets me explore i I love those types of games what's your favorite video game my favorite video game i would have to say donkey kong country 2 because that's what started it all for me and everyone was all about mario but i was all about donkey kong yeah i just love this the pace of it it was a nice medium between the craziness of Sonic the Hedgehog and mm-hmm. being timed down to the letter in, in Mario. 
it, it just has a little bit of everything. It was funny. The graphics and the music were amazing. Yeah, they're really good music. Yeah, like to this day, I'll be like hanging out, and all of a sudden, the song from the Bramble Branch Levels will just pop into my <laughs> mind. It's like, oh, I remember spinning myself into thorns and dying a billion times. It's just stuck in there. <laughs> Are there any games out right now that you're really excited about? I'm really excited about No Man's Sky, but I'm very skeptical that it's going to come out at this point. I, it's a huge world. It's um, procedurally generated, so you can't possibly play the same game twice. You won't even play the same game as your friends. And that's really exciting to me, that they're able to play with user experiences that way inside of a game. So I'm really looking forward to it, but... I'm worried that it's going to get pushed back into infinity. What's the game that you would love to design or like be a part of designing? I also like games with very strong narrative, things like Journey, Mass Effect, where you get to make choices. And I'd love to design a game with a character that makes meaningful choices from a world like the one I grew up in. So... I guess what I'm saying is I'd like to make a, an autobiographical game just to use games as a medium to express myself and get and explore some of those things, but also share that with others and maybe help mm -hmm. them get through it. I, I want to see how maybe a game can be used as a platform to mentor others. So, yeah, that's the kind of game I'd like to work on. All right, nice. I want to kind of switch gears here a little bit. One thing that I think has been a prevailing thread through a lot of what you've mentioned, we know with your work with higher education and things like that, is kind of this, I want to say like you have this feeling about educating and serving the greater good. Where does that come from? I think it comes from family. And I was often the eldest in the room. So I grew up feeling a tremendous amount of pressure to be a good example, to basically make mom and dad proud. And also give my younger sister and my cousins something to look to and, and aspire to. But, you know, fate, as it seems, has a funny sense of humor. And my influence amounted to not a whole lot. <laughs> and I get tremendously frustrated with that sometimes. We've had, I've had falling outs with family on, on Facebook because I got over-involved and over-invested in someone who didn't want or care about a positive influence in their child's life. So mm -hmm. I said, you know what? I'm going to go reach out to those students who want my help because you can't really help someone who doesn't want it. Um, yeah. And it took me a long time to get there. And there are times when I'm, I actually get like sad about that because having taken the path I have in, in my career and, in, and with my education, I've almost elected to separate myself from my family, not so much by my own choice, but because a lot of them don't know how to, to deal with me. I've always had a mind of my own. And my goal is to, to share that with other students who, who feel tremendous pressure maybe from their community or their family to accept the status quo and, and inspire them to try something else. Invest in yourself, explore your education, because I really do think that is powerful. Are there other designers out there that you really admire that maybe are kind of doing the kind of work that you are? I haven't really identified anyone that is 
necessarily as passionate in the design space. It tends to be people who are in the social work space or, mm. or things like that. But I know they're out there, and I know my, some of my friends definitely align with this. But it's tricky finding those people because we're all so busy all the time. Yeah. So I haven't really found anyone for that. Are you kind of where you wanted to be at this stage in your life? I would say no. <laughs> and the reason I say no is because I think I'm always going to lament the fact that I didn't get that computer science degree because that would have changed the entire scope of what I'd be able to do and accomplish. So I always think that I should be a little further than where I am. I should have made my own products, maybe started my own company. <laughs> but, you know, that's the thing with us overachievers, we're always thinking I should have, I could have, and I could always do better. And yeah. yeah, that's the way it is with me. Would you ever get that degree at some point in your life? Well, the funny thing is that I almost feel like I don't need to at this point because oh. I've been to various boot camps. I really love picking up books and teaching myself. So I think while it might take me longer to get there, I have a boss who is senior to me and, and, and really encourages my want to learn code. We pair all the time on coding prototypes. And I think I'll get there, maybe not as quickly as I'd hoped, but fast enough and soon. Because there are just so many resources out there. I don't think I need to indebt myself any further. And I can just go for it. If you weren't doing the work that you're doing now, though, what, what do you think you would be doing? Well, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a teacher or an artist. And I guess if I wasn't doing this now, I would definitely consider teaching. Well, in a way, you kind of, I guess, with the mentorship, you're, you're kind of teaching a little bit, right? Yeah, I, I definitely feel that, <laughs> that way. Um, and the design captures the art side of myself. Yeah fairly well, which is why I'm really happy with what I'm doing. But yeah, I've also taught small design and development courses as well. So oh, nice. I find ways to integrate all those dreams. There's still a few that remain to be seen, but I have time. <laughs> Where do you kind of see yourself in the next few years, like next five years or so? In the next five years, I see myself as, I know there's some things I know I want to accomplish. I want to create a game, or two, or maybe three. I'd like to start, if I haven't launched it already, I wanted to launch my own product. I have a few ideas brewing for, I definitely want to tackle a problem that will help disadvantaged communities, but also some on the, I'd also like to build something for artists and People of that persuasion, because a lot of them are frustrated by the tech industry, and I, I want to help them, because there was a point where I could have walked that path, and I decided towards the tech side. So I have a couple ideas for little pet projects that I'd like to have completed and maybe launch my own company. Well, Asia, just to kind of wrap up our conversation here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? You can find my work on my portfolio at asiaho.com. You can find me on Twitter at asiaho. I also have a separate Twitter account for my gaming exploits. It's at Genesis. There's a link in my main Twitter account's bio. 
I'm also working on a website for my gaming stuff as well, but that's not live yet. But keep an eye on that, and that's where you can find me. Sounds good. Well, Asia Ho, thank you again so much for coming on the show, for kind of telling me your story about how you really got into technology. And I mean, I, I empathize a lot with your college experience because my college experience was very similar to that, mm-hmm. that kind of bittersweet feeling. But I really like that you've been able to to really kind of rise from that and still become what it is you want it to be. When I asked you this question kind of before we, we started recording about kind of what you wanted the takeaway to be, you mentioned that it doesn't matter what your path is, that there's a way into tech. And I feel that even though you had that adversity, you still kind of fought hard and learned and, and got your way into tech to where you are right now. So I think that's certainly a testament that our audience will, will resonate with. So thank you again so much for coming on the show. I appreciate thank it. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Thoughts of love are And that's it for this week. A big thanks to Asia Ho and of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Asia and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks, of course, as always, to our sponsors, Facebook Design, MailChimp, and Hover. Facebook invests in design. They care deeply about how their design team might do their best work, and that manifests itself in a number of different ways, such as building tools like origami, sharing what they've learned on Medium, and by giving back to the design community. Learn more about Facebook Design at facebook.com forward slash design. More than 10 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters. Sign up for a free account today. MailChimp, send better email. Hover takes all the hassle and confusion out of buying and managing your domain. Search for a few keywords and Hover will show you the best available options across all the domain extensions out there. Ready to get started? Save 10% off your first purchase by using our promo code REVISIONPATH at checkout. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro audio by Yellow Speaker. Leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. It not only helps us get new listeners, it helps us move up those podcast rankings of the design category, and I'll even read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. If you like the work Revision Path is doing with the podcast and the website, then visit us over at Patreon and become a patron. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge your support. Pledge level started just $1 per month and you'll get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Push that.